Well, good morning and welcome to Trinity Church of Lake Nona. My name is Ben Bailey. I'm the pastor here and we are so glad that you are joining us. Today's going to be a unique Sunday. It's going to be very similar to our uh, prayer and communion service that we have every New Year's. So our theme this morning is going to play off our theme, which is uh, our theme all summer is seeking rest and renewal in this service. What my hope for you for this service is that it can be a powerful opportunity for you just to pause and to reflect and to see God's working in your life and hopefully gain some clarity on how he wants you to move forward in confident hope and develop a deep appreciation for one of the most famous songs uh, in world history. So um, the song Amazing Grace is going to be uh, kind of our anthem. And what I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the history of the song, why John Newton wrote it, what he intended it to be used for, and then we'll spend some time working through it to a to try and apply it to our life. Because Amazing Grace is probably the most sung, most recorded, and maybe most loved song of all time, at least in the English-speaking world. If you need a uh, summer reading recommendation, Jonathan Aiken's biography of John Newton is just fabulous. So fabulous biography. And he estimates that there's no other song that even comes close to the number of recordings and then the frequency of performance. His estimation that is probably performed somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 million times a year. And one economist estimated that if John Newton's estate actually received proper royalties for every time it was sung, he would be the richest man ever to live. I mean, that's not bad for a small town country pastor who wrote the song as a teaching tool for his congregation. And so it's a song that's just beloved. Uh, but the reality is a lot of people don't really kind of know its origin, uh, understand its intentions, or, uh, intentions, so we're going to look at some of those things. But as I said, our theme this month is seeking rest and renewal, and uh, I'm excited. I'm already getting excited because we personally, our family, we have, uh, we'll have three weeks of vacation coming up. Then I'm going to take a three-week kind of mini uh, sabbatical. So even thinking about a time of rest and renewal is already beginning to enter Energize, energize us. But one of the key pieces to finding rest and renewal is taking moments to pause and reflect and to look back on what the Lord has done in your life to this point and then to prayerfully seek how he wants you to move forward from here. And so that's originally why, uh, why John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. Um, did you know the actual title is not Amazing Grace? His original title is Faith's Review and Expectation. So the title is Faith's Review and Expectation. And that's actually a good illustration of how often authors don't know how to title their things very well. And they need editors. Very similar to The Lord of the Rings. Do you know what Frodo's original name was? Bingo. And an editor convinced him to change it. And so I don't know if he liked Frodo better or not, but the original name was Bingo. So Newton's uh, original title was Faith, Review, and Expectation. But that actually very clearly lays out what he uh, expected the hymn to do. The first three stanzas of the original hymn is Faith, Review, looking back. And the next three is your expectations of how to move forward uh, in hope. So he wrote it as a, as a tool to be used for personal growth. So we'll unpack that in a second. 
But just kind of before we get to it, just kind of some background on uh, John Newton, because the hymn is so powerful because it celebrates the salvation of a, a wretch like me. And if you know anything about his story, you know that's not an understatement. <laughs> he really was lived, lived a wretched life. Jonathan Aiken in his book tries to summarize, like, why is his life so... Uh, inspiring, so dramatic. I mean, it's the, it's the stuff that people have made movies about. But he talks about his his story was so compelling. Uh, he wrote a, when he was uh, 37, he wrote a, a internationally best-selling autobiography. And uh, one of the reasons it sold so well is because it had uh, kind of three strands. First, his life uh, what made it such a popular bestseller is his life was kind of this original rebel without a cause. So he was this well-brought-up boy who rebels against his family and against society. And he was just this wild uh, young man who was filled with all types of just anger and rage. And even at one moment in his life, he was on the verge of murdering the captain on the boat that he was on and then committing suicide just filled with anger, rage. His life was marked by deep tragedy very early. His mother, who he dearly loved, died when he was seven. And he said at that moment, it was like all the, all the warmth and comfort was drained out of my life. And then he had to uh, live the life at, at sea. He was, went through deep tragedy, was disgraced, was arrested, was publicly flogged, uh, deserted, was caught, almost was hanged. His, he said his life descend, descended into a living hell in the lower deck of a Navy uh, man of war, Navy ship. Uh, and then his exploits became even more colorful and more debauched. Uh, he said he was the ringleader of debauchery around his, his friends. Uh, he was able to escape the Navy, but then entered the slave trade. He offended everyone he met with his bad behavior, blasphemy, his suspected dishonesty. He eventually became a slave and was nearly starved to death and imprisoned by the tyrannical hatred of his white employer's black mistress. And it was actually the compassion of his fellow slaves that kept him alive. Eventually he was freed and then indulged in every form of what is it, wickedness and vice that the slave trade had to offer. Um, so just this remarkable story of a life that descends into a kind of radical darkness. Another key theme that's running through his whole story is it's also a, a deeply compelling love story. He fell deeply in love with his beloved Polly. Uh, he met her when she was 13, and he stayed just utterly devoted and committed to her his entire life. So much of his young rage was fueled because he felt like there was no way he would, they, they would ever be able uh, to come together. They were, uh, their, union, their union was thought impossible because of social distancing, not the kind that we know, but social status. They were in different social classes and it didn't look like he was too poor or had any opportunities uh, to move up. And then it became hopeless when he thought he could, it became hopeless because of geographical separation, parental disapproval, a lack of really any real affection on her part. So there was all types of obstacles to this union 
that uh, continued to fuel his anger kind of at the world. Because there's one thing his heart's desire is being uh, kept from him. So life is a remarkable story, love story, where they eventually can marry. But then his life, what makes it so powerful is this transformative spiritual journey where he rejects and rails against God and he's converted just in the most dramatic fashion. But when he's writing Amazing Grace, he very intentionally wants you not to think that the realities that he's writing about are true of someone with such a colorful life like him. He's very intentionally framing it so every Christian can look into it as a mirror and say, yes, that wor- those words are true of me as well. So that's what we want to do this morning. So let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your, uh, the radical way that you can redeem even those who are the most lost and wayward. But we also think of the radical way you redeem all of us of bringing new life bringing resurrection life. And so we ask that you help us this morning, uh, help us to have the wisdom to look back on our lives and then the courage to look forward. This we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. For our second time of reflection, I want to explain a little bit, just kind of walk you through about his intention behind the hymn and how he would use these hymns in his his ministry. So uh, Newton wrote Amazing Grace during December of 1772, and he originally intended it as a hymn, as a gift to his congregation on their New Year's Day celebration for January 1st, 1773. So we're coming up on the 250th uh, anniversary of the writing of the hymn. And uh, one of his kind of co-workers that he wrote it with was the uh, phenomenal British poet William Cooper. And so they actually live next door once uh, Newton, uh, so his kind of salvation story, he was saved. He felt God was calling him into the ministry. I started to train for the ministry. Uh, Took him seven years to get ordained and placed into a, and placed to a church. Uh, One, one of his biographers refers to that seven years as the seven years war because uh, he was a pretty colorful character so it took him a while to get settled in uh, Lord Dartmouth who was one of those powerful men in England at the time uh, eventually took him and placed him uh, got him a, a living and a, a place in, in Olney which was a small textile uh, town um, primary industrial town famous for its lace uh, the, the famous uh, uh, French family the Ribbons lived there famous for their lace so if you ever heard of ribbons that's where it uh, comes from. And so, but a, a textile uh, town. And so him and William Cooper uh, started working on hymns together. Uh, Newton eventually wrote 280. They're collected in the only hymn book. And it's this beautiful uh, hymn book. Uh, for two years, him and Cooper worked together and they did about three or four a month. And the way they would use them is Newton originally found that writing the songs, he would write them for the children as a way to teach them the key doctrine of of what we believe and found it so effective for the kids he tried it with the teenagers and found that the teenagers were actually engaged in listening and then eventually it spread to the adults so he would uh, write try to do a new hymn every week where he would then come and by this point they are all gathering so they'd have two services on Sunday kind of have the long morning service the afternoon service at four and then in the evening everybody would come to the great house which was Lord's Dartmouth's manor in only the 
that he never stayed at. So you kind of think like Downton Abbey, then everybody in the church would go to that house and then he would teach them the hymn for the week. So he'd teach them and then he'd explain what it all meant, how, you know, why he wrote it, kind of explain it all. And then they have a lady sit at one of the pianos and start banging it out. And then they'd all just kind of learn to, to sing it together. And it was a way of kind of training the children, everyone uh, all the way up. So this was specifically a New Year's Day hymn, and he intended it very specifically to be a prayer of examine, or a prayer of examination, where you pause and you're examining your life. You're taking stock of where you've been, uh, where you're going. You know, at this time, Newton's 47 years old. Um, this hymn actually was to, to play off his sermon and his sermon text. So the text for this hymn is First Chronicles uh, seventeen sixteen, And so that was the sermon text. So that's what he preached on. And then the hymn would kind of uh, add flavor and expound it. That passage is, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And this was a small thing in your your eyes, O God. You have spoken to, of your servant's house for a great while to come, and you have shown your goodness to future generations. So it's when you know, David uh, wants to build the Lord a house, and Nathan says, yes, go do what your heart desires, and then God comes back and says, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build a house for you. And it's David's response of celebration, like, who am I that you would do this great kindness uh, to me? So this, this, the song is meant to unpack uh, that that sermon. But as a prayer of examine, those are tools for reflection. And so what Newton encouraged, he says, every Christian ought to spend about five minutes every day examining your life, looking back on the day. And then you should spend about uh, every week, you should spend about an hour examining your week. He always would take an hour-long walk on Saturday evening to get his heart ready for the, the Sabbath, Sunday worship. And you examine your week. He said every month you should spend about two or three hours looking back, examining your month. And then he would encourage you that uh, for him, it was four times a year, you raise what they call an Ebenezer, the Ebenezer stone, where four times a year you look back on your life and have a longer uh, period. So he, his four were always on New Year's Day, uh, his birthday, which is also the same day he was ordained in the ministry, uh, the anniversary of the dramatic storm that was kind of the turning point in his life where he finally uh, kind of relented and turned back to God when God saved him uh, in this dramatic storm. And then on his wedding anniversary, he would take those four days and spend extended time in what he called the prayer of examine. And so what would you do in that prayer of examine? First, he said there was kind of three parts you would walk through. First, you want to have a moment of what he called recollection. That's where you're recalling. And your focus here is on your recalling sins and mercies. You're looking back on the day, looking back on your life, your sins and mercies. Mercies, he says, you look for blessings enjoyed and deliverances vouchsafed. Don't you love the old English? You know, we don't talk like that anymore. But you look for deliverances vouchsafed. So the blessings you've received and all of the things that the Lord has kept you from. 
You know, I really believe when we actually get to heaven, one of the biggest shocks is we'll see all the things that God's grace kept us from that we had no idea. And so he says, you look for the v deliverances vouchsafed, and then you look at uh, sins committed. Now, Newton was a, he, he was a regular minister, and so what that meant is they did the, the prayer book every day. So he led his congregation in prayer book services. So this is the 1662 uh, prayer book. Newton would have led his congregation in morning and evening prayers every single day. And so every single day they would have prayed this prayer for of confession. As you begin, we confess, Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, which confess their faults. Restore thou them, O God, that are penitent, according to thy promises declared upon mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of thy holy name. So that's a prayer they would have prayed every morning and every evening. And then that's a prayer of, of confession. And then the general prayer of thanksgiving they would have prayed every morning and every evening. And I think this is one of the most beautiful prayers ever written. That's just a, a remarkable demonstration of just health. Like soul health. Almighty God, Father of all mercies. We, thy unworthy servants, do give thee most humble and hearty thanks for all thy goodness and thy loving kindness to us and to all men. We bless thee for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life. But above all, for thine inestimable love and the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace, and for the hope of glory. And we beseech thee, give us that due sense of all your mercy, thy mercies, that our hearts may be unfeignedly thankful, and that we may show forth thy praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives, giving up ourselves to thy service and walking before thee in holiness and righteousness all of our days, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with thee and the Holy Ghost be honor and glory, world without end. Amen. So they would pray those two prayers every day. And what Newton is encouraging them to do is, all right, you've already said the words. Now take five minutes and just think how that's actually true, how it's true in your life. So think about just the, the, the sins and the, his, two, his favorite line in there is sins done and undone. So think about the things today you've done that you shouldn't have and the things you did not do that you should have done. So spend some time thinking about that and then spend time thinking about all of the mercies given. Tremendous mercy. His favorite line in there was the means of grace and the hope of glory. The means of grace coming to you and the hope of glory to move ahead. So just a couple minutes to reflect. And then the second level is to express, where you then express. The goal is humility and gratitude. Try not to have that always working in your heart. So next you express your contrition, your gratitude, and then you make a resolution. 
how do you want to move forward uh, tomorrow? And his two words were dedication and resignation. Now, resignation doesn't sound very good to us. It has like a negative connotation, but kind of in his world, it didn't have that type of negative connotation. The idea is that I determine moving forward to dedicate tomorrow to you, and my fundamental prayer is thy will be done. That's where I find my life, resign, you know, giving myself up to thy will be done. And as I said, the original title was Faith's Review and Expectation. And you can actually see those two things in the way it's, it's broken up. Stanzas one through three are Faith's Review. The first line sets the theme. This is going to be a celebration of grace. And then you can go through and mark how many times it's grace and then grace, 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 three times in the second line. And then grace has brought me, grace will lead me. Um, so faith review, it's looking back. And then you see uh, stanzas four, five, and six. This is faith expectation. And stanza four, the life to come, as long as my life endures. Uh, stanzas five, which we don't actually sing anymore. You know, as we, we sang it, it's not in our kind of loop and it's left out of most. But stanzas five was how we face the end of life. So when in our hour of death, and then here's the final last line that Newton wrote, the last line we sing, uh, it was added later, but his final last line is face expectation at the end of all things. So the key kind of question for us is how do you work into your life times to pause and reflect? You know, this hymn was meant to be a tool to help you reflect and look back and look forward. So let's ask the Lord to help us to do that. So Lord, we ask that you help us, help us not to stay so busy and active where we don't ever pause and take time, take time to remember the mercies we received and take time to look forward in confident hope. So we ask that you help us to so order our lives and schedules so we can do that and do it well. Amen. So now let's take a moment and let's walk through the first three stanzas because this would have been a face review, uh, looking back uh, on the first three stanzas, face review. And so we'll just read it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. So you can see, that's face review, and each stanza is giving you a different element of what grace does. So notice stanza one is telling us, this is what grace has saved me from. Grace has saved me, and it's saved me from, and there's three key things here I've been saved from. I'm, uh, there was a wretch, so wretchedness from being lost and being blind. So three things have been saved. Now, you first hear wretch, and you know one of the remarkable things about Newton's life is he could say that very truly. I mean, he, he lived a wretched life and really was a wretch. No argument there. But actually, he's using this word very intentionally because he wants to key your mind into Romans 7. The cry in Romans 7, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of sin and death? And what he's doing, saying, you know, this, this, the glory of this salvation is not confined to those who are uh, just uh, remarkably 
flagrant in their sinning. We all know what it means to be wretched and the wretched experience that Paul describes in Romans 7, which I think is probably one of the most powerful penetrating analysis of what we now call like depth psychology, of going to the depths of a human soul is Romans 7, and it's about this divided man, this person who's divided, who knows that there's good things that he wants to do, but always seems to fail and can't do it. And so some, something causes him to do the very things he doesn't want to do. And so when Newton's talking about, I've been saved, a wretch like me, he's talking about someone who's experienced the divided heart. The one, someone who has desires to accomplish something and then can't seem to do it and doesn't want to do these other things and always seems to do it. And every one of us knows what it's like to live kind of in that wretched state of where we feel uh, torn, we feel divided. So been saved from that divided heart. And then the phrase, I was lost but now I'm found. That's hearkening back to the, the story of the prodigal son as the father celebrates, my son was lost and now he's been found. And it's, it's echoing that line from uh, the prayer that they would pray every day about we, we all uh, like sheep have gone astray. So we've been lost, we've strayed. And so what he would press there is that everyone knows what it means to, to, to have strayed to have drifted, to have lost your focus, to become distracted, to become disoriented, to stray. And so we can know what it's like to be brought back. And then the last thing been saying for is that I was blind, but now I see. And he would say that's a universal spiritual experience. We've all experienced what it's like to be blind to God's mercy, blind to his grace, blind to the blessings that are all around us and not being able to see. So it says the beauty of grace is that it unites us, it brings us home, and it opens up our eyes so that we can see. That's why it's amazing. So stanza one tells us what grace, how it saved, or what it saved us from. Stanza two tells us how it does that. See, what grace does is because grace reveals. Notice the revelation language. It has taught me something, and then it relieves something, and then it appears. So there's a revelation aspect about grace. First, it has taught my heart to fear. So this is going, he was very uh, kind of Lutheran in his law gospel. There's a law that we need to, to teach us that reveals to us that we're sinners. And then there's a gospel that, is, that relieves uh, that angst and anxiety. And so what grace does, it first has to, um, it has to teach my heart to fear. So I have to learn, I have to fear the Lord. I have to learn that I am a sinner in his presence. So it teaches me what I should fear, but then it relieves those fears. It reveals the remedy. And then how precious did that grace appear. So it appears to us when we believe. So the goal is to bring us to the place of belief. And it's interesting, he puts the hour the hour. It was a moment when I believed. So grace, uh, it saves me and it reveals these things to me. And then it guides me. It's guiding uh, me to this point. Grace guides. This is where he's going to celebrate all those deliverances vouchsafed. It has guided me. Three big things you notice that it's, it's guided me through. Dangers, toils, snares. So he's looking back and dangers, what dangers are, dangers are external things that you have no control over. 
This is the storm that hits your boat and you, you just have to survive somehow. It's a great storm that hit Newton's boat. He was called up from the lower deck. He came running up to the top deck. There was a man right in front of him. As soon as they hit the deck, a wave came and took the man right in front of him out to sea, drowned. And then Newton looked, and then Newton then, uh, t he, he, what's the word I'm looking for? Strapped himself to the mast and then grabbed the wheel of the ship and had to try and navigate through this storm the entire night to keep it from, from falling apart. So we'd say dangers. These are things that come from the outside. These are pandemics, economic downturns, disease, different things that can kind of come from the outside that you have no control over. Says I've been brought through dangers. Toils are just the hardships of life. These are just what life is hard. It requires work. It requires labor, difficulty. And then snares are the actual intentional things that we do, the sins that ensnare us and can entangle us. So as you look at this, all three categories, we've been uh, delivered in each category. Many dangers, toils, and snares. I've already come. I've already passed this way. And so he says, you remember those. And then here's the turning point of the hymn. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far. So I celebrate even in the midst of all of those things. I'm still here. We're still here. We're still moving forward. So celebrate. Grace has brought me this far. And now I turn up. See, right up until this point, we're looking back, celebrating the way grace has brought us here. And then now we turn. Grace will lead me home. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for the reality that grace has brought us safely this far. And we thank you that every person in this room could give different elements of testimonies of grace, bringing them through difficulties, dangers, toils, snares. And so we ask that you help us, help us when we find ourselves in the middle of any of these things to go through them with faith, to go through them with hope, to go through them with trust. And then once we're through them, help us to look back and to celebrate. And may they be opportunities to strengthen our faith. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And then for face expectations, you can look and see stanzas four, five, and six, because now he wants you to turn uh, your thoughts to move forward. And what he does in stanzas four, five, and six, he gives us the three uh, key areas of life through the uncertainty of life, at our hour of death, and then the end of all things. And so first, through the uncertainties of life, the Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be. As as long as life endures. So you turn forward in hope through the uncertainties. I will move forward with this hope. Now it's interesting in the second half, uh, grace is no longer, uh, I don't have the word grace again. It's kind of moved off the scene and now we're moving towards things like hope and joy and confidence. And so this is about life, how you're going to go through life. Three key things there is his promises, his protection, and he's my portion. So I move forward in hope with these promises. He has promised good to me. And it's his word has secured that. So I move forward knowing that there's good coming. And that's from his great promises. Probably echoing Romans 8, 28. Now we know that all things work together for good to those that love God and to them that are called according to his purposes. So have this promise that I can move forward in the security of hope. And then I move forward with his protection. It's, he's my, my shield. So that is the shield of faith. So as we go through, there's uh, 
accusations and from the enemy that are going to come and distractions and difficulties. So I have this shield that's going to protect me as I move forward. And then I move forward knowing that he's my portion. This is echoing things like Psalm 16, uh, 5. The Lord is my portion and my inheritance. The lot has fallen for me in pleasant places. Echoing the idea of like the Levites, they had no portion because the Lord was their inheritance. He was their portion. So I move forward knowing I have these promises, I have his protection, and he is with me. So no matter what comes in the uncertainties of life, I have these three things to hold on to. And then the second, fifth stanza that uh, we, we don't often sing now, this is how we deal with the hour of death. And it's interesting to think, well, I wonder why we don't actually sing this one. But yea, when this flesh and heart shall fail, and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. So he says, in the hour of death. And this would probably have been one of the most important stanzas for Newton in his time. Because we kind of forget how precarious life was in this world. I mean, you could cut yourself in your shop on Friday, uh, Monday, it could get infected and you could be dead by Friday. So life was precarious. At the same time when the Methodist revival was exploding all over England and people would ask John Wesley, what is the secret to Methodism's just expansion? He says, we die well. We teach people how to die well. So notice when the heart and flesh, they fail. That's Psalm 73, 26. My heart and my flesh, they faileth. There's going to come a day when the body is going to break down. How are you going to respond then? So he says, I have this hope, this mortal life. I have a spiritual and a physical life. The mortal life will cease, but my life will not cease. I will possess, I will go within the veil, in the heavenly veil, and I will possess joy and peace. So he's saying there's access and opportunity to have joy and peace regardless of situation, regardless of circumstance, regardless of how you feel. And then the last verse, and the earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. So I have his promise. I move forward in hope during life. I have his promise for move, I can be secure in death. And even at the end of all things, I still have this strong and mighty hope. So he doesn't believe in global warming. It's global cooling. It's going to dissolve like snow. But even at the end, I have this ultimate hope. Reiterating, what's your only comfort in life and death? I'm not my own. I'm his. I belong to another. So how would he want to use this? You know, it's interesting. The reception of, of Amazing Grace was utterly unremarkable. Uh, they went to the house. They kind of learned it. He gave this as a gift to his congregation as a New Year's hymn. He wanted them to memorize it and then to go off on their own and just think about how it's true in their own life as a prayer of examine. Never referenced it again in any of his, his, his uh, journals. Never really took off in England. In fact, it's kind of looked down on in England. It wasn't even included in the Anglican hymn books until 1900. It's looked at as one of those body American songs. Didn't really take off till it got over here. And uh, 120 years is kind of laid dormant. Actually, in fact, William Cooper, uh, who helped help Newton write these hymns, not sure how much he helped uh, wrote this one. As Newton was teaching it at the house to the congregation, Newton was at his, uh, Cooper was at his home committing suicide or attempting to commit suicide. 
And uh, Newton had to leave that night, had to go back, had to help his friend. Cooper never came to church again, uh, again there. So he really experienced, he sang about the Lord walking him through dangers, toils, and snares. And that night he entered a very difficult uh, one. How did it get to where it is? Uh, there's some debate here, but William Walker, music teacher from South Carolina, went through the South and uh, 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 brought a, a, a compilation that he called the Southern Harmony. Wanted to introduce the world to all the good Southern sounds. And uh, the most likely, he took the tune we sing for Amazing Grace now, took it from uh, listening to slaves sing it. So from the plantation. And then the last line that we always sing about, uh, you know, when we've been there 10,000 years, that was added in 1910 by Edwin XL. He took it from the hymn, Jerusalem, My Happy Home, that has over, has 60 stanzas. So he just took one and thought nobody would notice. So, so that's how, so Newton's gift, this hymn was a gift, gift for his congregation to take it and use it to reflect and examine on their life. So I hope that uh, you will take it sometime this summer and spend some time and do the same uh, with it. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll conclude with amazing grace. Lord, we thank you for this gift. We thank you for your amazing grace. We ask that you uh, help us too to go forward with the confidence knowing that the Lord has promised good to me in your word. And your resurrection has secured our hope. So help us in all things and in all ways to live in the light of that reality and that hope. Amen. And now may the grace of God the Father, the love of God the Son, and the power of God the Spirit be yours now, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.